Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Rabi Alamedin, whose latest novel is The Angel of History. This is his sixth book. Other books are An Unnecessary Woman, The Hakawati, I the Divine, a collection of stories called The Perv, and first novel is titled Kool-Aids. Also has been a painter, born in Jordan, grew up in Kuwait Mm -hmm. and Lebanon. At the age of 17, left Lebanon, lived for a while in England, and has lived between, I guess, Beirut and San Francisco ever since. Yeah. I came to the U.S. at 17. I was in England when I was about 15. I went to high school there. The Angel of History deals with the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. Before we get into some of the details, when you'd finished An Unnecessary Woman, what brought you to looking back at the history of San Francisco and in particular the history of the AIDS crisis? Uh, A number of things. I actually finished Unnecessary Woman around 2011, although it came out in 2014. But I was interested in, in how I started with the book was that I realized I was getting angry uh, and I wasn't exactly sure what I was getting angry about. And then I started remembering uh, a, a lot of friends that I've lost and things that happened during the AIDS years. And that's when I began to realize that it's not just that the world has forgotten, it's that I have forgotten. And I started trying to remember what happened, and a lot of it came back in, in the book. You worked at the Shanti Project. No, I was a volunteer with at okay. the Shanti Project. I mean, again, when I look at it, I thought it was kind of uh, weird and funny in that all my friends were dying, and I decided I needed more in some ways, and I started as an emotional support volunteer at Shanti. When you began working on the book, at what point did you realize that you were going to kind of create this almost magic realism fantasy about memory, about forgetting, and about AIDS? And how did that come together? A lot of it was just instinct. I was talking to uh, Sarah Shulman, a friend of mine, and I was telling her that I was back in sort of my first novel, Kool-Aids, which uh, dealt with the AIDS epidemic, but it was fragmented and insane. And I was telling her that I just can't seem to Uh, to write it straight up, it had to be, shall we say, insane. Primarily, I felt, and I still do, that it's really difficult to look back at that time and make any sense of it. It was completely nonsensical. What was happening, how it was happening, how it was ignored, if you look at it as real as possible, or even worse, if you look at it without any sense of humor, absolutely, it'll drive me insane. Uh, It just seemed the natural way of writing for me. You created a character named Jacob, all of whose friends had died in Mm -hmm. the epidemic, and this is years later, yet 
that was not your situation, or was it? No, it wasn't. I didn't have a lover who died, and I definitely have very little in common with Jacob, other than the fact that what Jacob is going through is similar to what I went through, which is that I put things aside to be able to move forward. And Jacob did the same thing. And, you know, memory works in a strange way. It's like all of a sudden these memories start coming up and I had no control over it. And neither does Jacob. There's quite a lot of differences between Jacob and me. My favorite joke, I think I've made it once, is that Jacob likes uh, sadomasochistic sex. And, and for me, you know, rough sex is uh, sleeping on sheets that are less than 600-count cotton. So it's it just doesn't—we we, we very little in common. But the feelings are the same. Why did you choose to make him an S&M person? Because, one, it fit in, in the idea that I was trying to present, which is that for most gay men and, and particularly minorities, we are denigrated constantly and shamed. You know, as an Arab, I wrote about, you know, Arab shame in the book. It's a constant mechanism of, of feeling inferior, constantly being told that we are inferior as a gay man, constantly being seen as, you know, well, you're kind of cute and nice, but, you know, real men stand there. Uh, so that the whole idea of what shame means, it became an integral part of the book. But you didn't feel that shame, or did you feel that shame in the 80s in San Francisco? I don't know any gay man who doesn't feel that shame. And if they don't, it's, it's a denial. I don't know any minority, any person of color, or anybody who lives on, in the, on the margin that does not feel that kind of shame. We either mask it or we go the opposite and talk about, you know, proud. But it's basically still the same core issue, which is that society views us as less than. And the truth is that for most of us, when we look honestly at how we view the world, we view ourselves as less than. So we compensate and we try to do this and we try to do that. Uh, and a lot of times we're successful, but it's if it's fighting a battle against this self-shame. San Francisco in the 70s and 80s and leading into the AIDS epidemic is a time that has now kind of devolved into history. And now with Trump on the horizon, I don't want to see the anger that we generated, that we felt, disappear even though this was written prior to and perhaps a little bit during the uh, election process, is that kind of what you were driving at? I wasn't predicting Trump by any stretch of the imagination, but I was predicting the situation, which is that we did lose the anger, and that was what my anger was about. It was this feeling that for a lot of those of us who live in the margins, that the idea of, you know, whether it was gay marriage or in the armed forces, that that this is what we're fighting for, uh, that we are fighting for acceptance within the dominant culture. I think that's really wonderful, but that's the least of what I'm fighting for. I'm uh, fighting for, or at least for me, it was the, the idea of what, how do we treat the other? And we're nowhere near uh, that. And in some ways, it's proving to be the case that there are lots of the dominant culture still fears those of us who are in the margins, whether it's, you know, queers or 
uh, Mexicans or Arabs or Muslims or black men or that that has never been dealt with. It's like we're still trying to be accepted as part of the dominant culture, uh, but we have given up who we are for it. And I think that's the problem. That's the essential problem. So no, I was not angry at Trump per se, but Trump is just the manifestation of where this society was going through. During the AIDS crisis, it seemed that certain groups, friends, groups of friends, all of them were almost all died. And then others, like in my circle, very few of them died. Mm -hmm. The angel of death passed over my house but hit another house. Mm -hmm. Very, very strange feeling when reading this to know that my friends are mostly negative and mostly alive, mm -hmm. and yet Jacob's and many others aren't. I mean, again, it was a virus, uh, or it is a virus. Lots of things about it are still unexplained in how it spread. But primarily, one of the things that uh, it affected some groups more than others, because we're still segregated groups. The thing that I was interested in is that I had a lot of friends die because I belonged to many different, uh, or at least I had a foot in many different things. In 82, we started a gay soccer team. Uh, and that was fascinating because it brought all kinds of gay men from different backgrounds onto the team. Half the team died. Yet if I look at the gay soccer team now and what it has become, most of them wouldn't even know what happened. None of them. You know, so it just depends on the time and the group and uh, the associations. The book consists of sequences, well, the whole thing is kind of in Jacob's head, but the book does consist of these sequences, a discussion between Satan and death, which you've talked about in interviews as the tension between memory and forgetting. On some level, we should never forget. On the other hand, if we want to move on, we sort of need to, or do we? How does we can't that work? not forget. Uh, I mean, if... If we remember everything, we'll spend all our life remembering. It is impossible. It's impossible to remember without forgetting. And, of course, it's, uh, you can't forget without remembering. Uh, otherwise, there's nothing to forget. So it's a dance that we do constantly. Uh, and this is the main theme of the, of the book, is, is what are we remembering and what are we forgetting? So this tension is what I'm interested in, that Jacob had to put things aside to be able to move on. Uh, as did I, as did most gay men of my generation. But what did we put aside and what was the cost of that is what I'm interested in. And how much now should we bring it up? How much do we remember? Uh, part of the thing was that Satan says in one of the interviews is that Jacob had a heart too small at the time. And it's because the grief was so much that it's, it's really difficult to be able to hold it. But then we grow up. We begin to be able to hold much more. So now I can look back at some of the things that happened and grieve without feeling that I will be lost in the grief. When you create a character like Jacob and you know you're going to put him in this position and you've figured out a little bit about him and you've also kind of figured out that this tension is going to exist and you'll be bringing in Satan and death. At what point do you look at and go, okay, who is Jacob? What is his history? 
And what, if any, does that history have to do with my own? Uh, interesting. A lot of it actually, I, I call it happens on paper, even though I write on the computer. What I usually need to do is sort of find what I would call the voice of Jacob. How angry is he? Uh, how funny is he? How depressed should he be? And, you know, what characteristic is going to take over at one point? The details of what happened is usually just, uh, you know, when I'm writing, I, I some things seem right and some things don't seem right. So the most important thing for me is finding the voice because once I have it, it's in my head. Then uh, the details begin to, this will either work because it fits the voice or it doesn't work because it fits the voice. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'll be writing something and I'm thinking, oh, it's great. But then when I read the thing, when I read it back, it, it sounds off kilter. So usually that means that it just doesn't fit who Jacob is at the point. Jacob was a lovely character for me. I, I, uh, I adore him because he's both tortured and, uh, I want to say, and still has a sense of humor and in many ways a sense of wonder, as cynical as he is. And that kind of balance is probably, for me, much more difficult than uh, what details, like where did he grow up or why this happened. Uh, so, like, where do I show his cynicism without making him, uh, you know, without it taking over? Uh, in this case, it turned out that the best way to do it for me was putting it in the stories uh, that he wrote, uh, which can be seen separate as from the narrative, but at the same time part of the narrative. By the stories that he wrote, are you talking about growing up in the brothel then? No, the stories that he wrote, I'm talking about the the drone story okay. and the Arab in the cage story. Which you developed from somewhere else, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I had the general idea of what I was doing, but those were sort of independent stories that fit who Jacob was and how he saw himself. So they were both independent and part of the novel. And the brothel stories, uh, yes. growing up in a brothel and then later in a uh, orphanage in Beirut. In a nunnery. In a nunnery. Well, it felt like an orphanage because there are it other is, kids it is, there. Sorry, it is an orphanage. It's just I like to call it as a nunnery because it's an <laughs> orphanage run by nuns. Yes, I was fascinated by sort of the two dichotomies. You know, and, and one is Eastern and one is more Western. And, and I don't have to tell you which one is which. But the whole idea of his growing up, again, they just fit the story. At what point? I mean, was it just like I'm, you're writing and suddenly it goes, he was in a brothel? He grew up in a brothel? Was it that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, yeah kind of. I mean, I mean the, the thing it started out with, his mother was the maid for his father's household. And they kicked her out. And, you know, in, in, like most immigrants she would have to go back to her own country if she, you know, got kicked out. And so she'd go back to her country, and I thought, what could she do? You know, what could she do? You know, at one point, he starts the novel by saying, yes, I'm the son of a whore. And it's like, of course. You know, and this is what I mean by it just fits. Once I have it in, in my head, you know, if he sees himself as the son of a whore, of course, so why not just make it literal? The other sequences involve various saints who come in. Did the idea that he was going to be in a nunnery come first or the saints? The saints came first. And the saints came first because 
You know, these are what they're called the 14 holy helpers. They were popular during the uh, bubonic plague. So, of course, they had to come back during the AIDS years. But the idea was that during the bubonic plague, people were dying so fast that they could not pray to different saints at different times because between sort of the first symptoms and death was such a short time that they put them all together, you know, like all in one kind of thing. And I love that idea that there are these 14 holy helpers that come and they had to come during the AIDS years because we had a similar situation. But what I also loved was that these 14 holy helpers were all primarily uh, Middle Eastern saints, if not Middle Eastern, you know, close by Greece. In 1969, the Pope decided to, uh, I don't know what the word is, but to unsaint them. And I thought this is interesting, you know, that all the Middle Eastern saints were taken away, whereas, you know, he kept all the Italian saints. It's as if he was telling the Middle East that you are uh, not Christian, uh, which I find fascinating. And so they had to come there. Uh, But the idea of the nunnery, the orphanage that is run by nuns, is because there are a number in Lebanon. And even though I didn't go to a nun school, my cousins did. And I always felt it interesting that here were these Western nuns coming to civilize us. And they worked really hard at civilizing us. Uh, And we're still paying the price. And I thought, you know, of course, if he is going to go from his mother to his father, if he's going to go from, you know, the east to the west, he's going to go from a warehouse to a nun school. There's a huge gap of his biography that's missing, which is pretty much the gap that goes from Beirut to San Francisco. Did you fill in that gap yourself or does that gap still exist? The gap still exists. In my head, it's filled. You know, he talks about having to go to Stockholm when he was uh, attacked. But the idea is how he got from Stockholm to the U.S. But that's easy. You know, I mean, he talks about going to school and then right away he meets his lover. So the gap isn't that much of a time period because, again, he, he graduates from high school, goes to college. And during college or right after college, he meets his lover. And that starts the book. When you were interviewed for the Hakawadi You made the comment, I'm always influenced by my reading. What reading influenced you for the angel of history? Oh, quite a few. You know, I mean, once I realized that Satan was there, I started reading Paradise Lost, Milton's. I've read it before, but I ended up reading three times. Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, where, you know, the best saint and the best cat in in literature. It's an amazing book. But primarily, I started reading, you know, like Alan Bennett's The Buddy and Its Dangers. It's a great book of short stories about the time. And he died, I think, right after the book was published. I did a lot of uh, readings. But, you know, again, this is how I do my research. I started reading novels in, set in Yemen. And, I mean, again, I read both for fun and to, to learn. I read a hell of a lot of poetry, a hell of a lot. Because, one, I was terrified as, you know, writing about a poet, what would it be like, you know, and how will he sound? And so I read a hell of a lot of poetry, and I stole a lot from from poets, just, you know, like all kinds of fabulous descriptions. 
that creates an interesting question, which is that you might write poetry, but of course Jacob's poetry, because Jacob has a different voice than you, is going to be different from yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on some level, you have to become Jacob to write his I, poetry. Th- well, I have to become Jacob to write the novel in many ways. That's part of the way I write novels, which is, you know, I sort of imbue the character or the character imbues me or, you know, however you want to put it. Uh, but one of the more interesting things is that, you know, I was I was a little afraid of the poetry. I have a number of friends who are poets, but one, Doug Powell, is, is, is a good guy and he lives in San Francisco. And it was important that uh, I, I sent him some of the poets. His response was, they're better than mediocre. And I thought, oh, that's not bad. I could live with that. A couple of questions about earlier books. An Unnecessary Woman focuses on a woman living in Beirut. What brought you to that book? Usually it's it's something that happens to me, and, and I start, uh, shall we say, reinterpreting. And that's why she's an interpreter or a translator. One of the things that I realized was that people give me a lot of leeway uh, because I'm a writer. So the assumption is that, you know, I'm an writer, so the, my weirdness is part of who I am. You know, I mean, I prefer being alone than being with people. And, and I started thinking, what if somebody had the same characteristics, but did not have uh, sort of what Lord Byron called the, the outlets, which is art, per se, you know, so that we'd given an excuse, and, and so that she'd be completely unnecessary. And I thought, if I had a character who's older, who's not married, no children, and basically worked by herself. Would her life be necessary or not necessary? That's when the character came out. I was also interested in the story of Bruno Schulz, the writer who was Polish during the Nazi invasion when they took over his town. Uh, He was kept alive briefly because the shall we say, the commander of the town, wanted his son's bedroom to be painted, and Bruno Schulz was also a painter. So he kept him alive to do a mural, and he kept him alive by designating him as a necessary Jew. And I started thinking, you know, what is an unnecessary Jew? You know, what is an unnecessary human? Who decides what makes someone necessary or not? So I started thinking about this, this woman who would be unnecessary, and how valuable is her life? And that's where the novel started coming. Rabbi Alamadine, one more question about Angel of History, and then I want to go back a little bit further in your life. Uh, the title apparently comes from a piece by Walter Benjamin, who mm-hmm. I had actually not heard of and wound up looking him up. He died during the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. What brought you to that title and to Walter Benjamin? Well, he died... Uh, during World War II, he was trying, he was escaping. 1940, yeah. Yeah, he was escaping the Nazis. He died in Spain, but he killed himself because he was about to get caught. He uh, is an incredible writer, an incredible philosopher as well. But I was interested in this little piece that he wrote called The Angel of History because that's the title of a Paul Clay painting or a drawing because I think it's on paper. But Paul Clay did this uh, lovely, lovely drawing But what Benjamin did with that drawing, how he described it, is an amazing thing. He basically said that the uh, angel of history is looking backward uh, with sadness towards this this storm that's 
coming and has passed him in many ways. The storm of modern modernity of things moving, things were moving too fast, and one did not have time to look back at the things we've lost, the things we've destroyed, and all the destruction left in the wake of modernity. And this was in 1940, and I, you know, it's the same now where. We never have the chance to look at what we are losing. We're moving so fast, and we keep getting, you know, new iPhones, new computers, uh, new elections, without looking at what happened. Where are the things that we have lost? And so we lose the ability to not just grieve, but to remember. And so that's the whole that brings up the whole idea of the book, which is that. We, we seem to be constantly moving forward. What is the next new thing? What is the, as if everything new is, is wonderful. And most of the time they are wonderful. It's just that you know, we should every now and then stop and look back and say, this is what we've lost. I think that becomes evident when you go to Beirut because the city now is so different from what it was when you knew it. Uh, absolutely, but it also, also becomes evident when you look at the election. It's as if we can't remember. We can't remember how the destruction that we caused during the Reagan years, or the Bush years, or the uh, or the Clinton years, you know. And we all of a sudden was like, okay, we want to make America great again. Got great. Good luck. There's a line in the book which comes from Gore Vidal, "United States of Amnesia." What struck me about the election was not merely that we forgot all of that. But it seemed as if the news media and everyone else forgot what happened three or four days yeah, earlier. Yeah, it yeah. was like by the time of the election, even though it was just a couple of weeks, people forgot the debates. Like I said, our ability to forget is improving <laughs> at such a rapid pace. I mean, again, so that was why I wrote the novel. What I think is fascinating is not only is it proving, you know, timely. It's just that I didn't expect the speed with which we're forgetting. One scandal after another, one scandal after another that all of a sudden we just don't want to remember anymore. Like, okay. What I'm interested, again, is just the balance of, you know, what is it that we're willing to give up? What is it that we're willing to remember? And what is it that we don't want to? Rabi Alamadeen, you were born in Amman. Mm -hmm. You grew up early years in Kuwait and Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Your Lebanese in background? My parents were both Lebanese. I was born in Jordan because my grandfather was uh, a doctor in Jordan at the time, and my mother delivered at his hospital. Did you primarily grow up then in, in Beirut? No, in Kuwait at first. Uh, I spent, I mean, my parents were in Kuwait, uh, and I grew up there. But then Kuwait gets so hot in the summer, so with my mom and my sister, we'd we'd go to be to Lebanon for the summer and actually we'd go up to the mountains. So your first language was Arabic? Arabic. English came probably also my first language when I was growing up. And what about French? French should have been because I grew up in Kuwait, I was sent to a an English school. So that when I went to Lebanon I was put in the English school and not the French school. Well, when you were in those schools, did you do a lot of reading? Of course. <laughs> I grew up reading. Uh, you know, in many ways, the biggest blessing I could ever think of was that I grew up in Kuwait, where at the time, there was nothing. It was just desert. So there was nothing to do other than, you know, sit at home and read. Uh, so I devoured books. You know, I, I keep telling the story that my father, 
before he died, he reminded me that when I was four, he asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I told him I wanted to, you know, write, become a writer. And the reason was I was talking at the time was that it was I wanted to write Superman comics because, you know, I devoured anything, and at that time, that's what I read. But I moved quickly to reading, you know, Enid Blyton to, you know, this, this sort of like the Hardy Boy stuff, and then I started reading books by the age of 10 and 11. By the age of 12, I read Jacqueline Suzanne. I'm not going to go there with gay no. stereotypes. No, so, you no. Know. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's just say she, you know, in terms of camp, even at 12, I, I saw <laughs> what she was trying to do. <laughs> you ever get into a science fiction fantasy phase? Oh, God, phase? yes, absolutely. I mean, I read Asimov really early and, and Heinlein. But I really, really got into, by the time I was 13, 14, into uh, fantasy books, uh, sword and sorcery, and not just Tolkien. You know, I, I read everything, everything. Uh, my sort of young adult teenage years, I read any book that I came across any book. I had a cousin who was visiting from Australia, and she read Harlequin Romances. I read Harlequin Romances. You know, I was reading one or two books a day. It just didn't matter. I read everything. Not much television, but a lot of... There, there wasn't much television. That's what I mean by it was a blessing uh, until I moved to Beirut when I was 10. Of course, Kuwait is completely different now. We're talking right. 50 years ago. Until I moved to Beirut when I was 10, there was nothing to watch on television. I just read when I went to Beirut. I still read, but it was different. It was that, you know, I had my cousins around me. I started playing soccer. I became active. Uh, in Kuwait, there wasn't much. They just, you know, where, what we were, where we were, and what we were doing, there wasn't much. Did you move into the realm of reading literature as opposed to, say, genre? Did that come in college or when you oh, were no, 15? Oh, no, earlier, or? 15, 16. I remember one of the first I read was Naipaul. And I remember because there was this cover. He, had, he was on the cover of Time magazine. And uh, then I was sort of stupid enough to read Time magazine. It was about Naipaul, that he's a writer's writer, et cetera. And I, I picked up the book, A House for Mr. Biswas, and it blew me away. It just blew me away primarily because he was writing about, I mean, I was by myself in England. The war had started in Lebanon. Uh, I was getting called all kinds of names and, and, you know, being an outsider. And here was this writer who uh, was writing about a uh, an Indian family in, in Trinidad, and he moved to the, England. So he was writing about brown people, if you want to call it that, and making them the center of the story. It was the first time that I read something where I saw that my life mattered. At what point did you come out of the closet in terms of both your reading, your writing, and your life? There's a joke that I was never in the closet. I don't think I ever was, really. I never pretended to be straight um, or anything. But the time when I came out publicly to my parents was so college, probably, you know, my early, early 20s, um, and then publicly, publicly with my first book. Let's go back to that first book. Had you written a lot before that that didn't get published, or how no, did that work? No, no, no. Kool-Aid's was the first thing I wrote. I'm one of the lucky ones. It, it uh, found an agent quickly and a publisher even quicker. Uh, no, I had never written anything beforehand. 
for me, I, it was, you know, I, I, I needed desperately to write it because it was what I wanted to say. I always tell people, you know, if you don't like the literature you're reading, write it. Uh, and that's what happened. I did not like at the time what the what was called the AIDS literature, so I wrote a book. What turned you to painting? Because for a while there you were... Uh... Bef- uh, before I started writing, I went on a painting binge for five years, I think. Uh, no, actually less than that, four years. But primarily, I had a friend who was dying, and when he was dying, he decided that he was going to become a painter, and he was truly, truly atrocious. Uh, I loved him dearly, but, you know, his paintings were just the worst. But he was so happy that I decided, I, I can do that. And I started painting. And again, I was lucky in many ways that uh, within a year, I had a solo show in San Francisco. Within two, I had a solo show in New York. You know, by the time I stopped, or I would say I stopped painting publicly, I, I always joke that I stopped at my peak. I had a gallery in London, a gallery in New York, a gallery in San Francisco, and one in Beirut. And I still think that I sucked, so I wrote a book. Ever since I started writing, I'm no longer as lost as I was. I kind of figure... The joke was when I was painting, no matter how successful I was, I, I felt like a fraud. As a writer, I only feel like a fraud half the time. So it's, it's, it's an improvement. Uh, your second book was a collection of short stories. What caused you to switch to short stories? And I've noticed in both this and Hakawati that even though these are novels, they are also, in their own way, collections of short stories. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you can joke that maybe I have a short attention span. But Kool-Aid's was the same way. They're, they're vignettes in many ways. The collection of short stories, I was teaching myself to write. So I had to try on different things. So I was trying this story and that story and this story and that story. When I started writing again for I, the Divine, it's a novel in first chapter. So she tries to tell her stories and she constantly starts and tries again. I don't think I've ever written a book that is linear, as in uh, I start from point A and end in point B. Uh, It's not how my mind works. So primarily... I always write short pieces. You know, I've tried writing uh, short stories, and I have since The Perv. But what I find interesting that usually I will take the stories apart and make them back into the novel. But at the center of it is always the voice. The voice. I mean, I don't know if you can separate things as easily. It's like voice and structure. I don't know if I'm able to separate, say, voice from plot, because what happens is usually determined by the voice. And, you know, uh, the voice is determined by what ha- what's happening. So there's this interrelationship between the two. You've also said in an interview that you don't like didactic fiction, which means that on some level, even though you're a political writer, the politics, you have to find it in the subtext. Well, yes, but again, that whole notion of political writer, I do not know any writer who is not political. I cannot imagine a writer being non-political. And I've said it once, and I will say it again. A writer who says that her work or his work is not political is a very privileged writer um, that can live in a, in a bubble. We are political beings. Politics defines us so that our work will reflect that, whether we want it or not. But most people talk about political fiction is usually what I would call bad fiction, 
uh, or didactic fiction, where the message becomes much more important than the work itself. That's a different kind of writing. But my work is political because I exist in this world, and everything informs my, my work so that I cannot imagine it not being so. But what's interesting, again, is that uh, in the last book was about a woman who is 72 years old, rarely leaves her apartment, and translates books that no one reads. Uh, yet, for a lot of people, that was seen as a political novel. And I find that fascinating because, of course, it is a political novel. But why is that novel political and not, say, uh, you know, an, uh, a novel about a couple in Minnesota? Primarily because it's, it happens in the Middle East. So for a lot of people right away, that's political. And yes, that is political. But so that's what happens over here. Uh, years ago, I interviewed Mavis Galat, the short mm-hmm. story writer, and she made the comment that the only people who say that literature is apolitical, tend to be conservative. Yeah. Which goes back to what you were saying, the privilege. Privilege. And again, like, if you look at Mavis's work, which I adore, it's usually about one person. So you think, how is that political? But that is exactly what political is. Again, I've said it many times before, writing about the human condition is a political act. And that's what writers do. We write about the human condition. So that the story of a woman who lives alone and is, uh, you know, translates books by herself of an old woman in Beirut is by its very nature a political novel. Well, it also goes back to the notion which we can see even most clearly, say, in Grapes of Wrath, that the more specific and personal you make the story on some level, the more universal it becomes. That's the balance. Again, uh, sometimes it's not and sometimes it is, but that always depends on how good the work is. Rabbi Alamadine, have you ever given thought to writing screenplays or theater? Passing thought. It's not my thing. I mean, I'm not fond of most of what passes for theater. Uh, I think a novel can tell a lot more. Uh, and even, you know, I look at some of the plays that have won major awards, and I think, you know, that's really lovely. But most novels deal go much more depth. Uh, and movies, same thing. Now, again, I'm interested because I'm always always interesting to work in, in a new medium, uh, challenge myself and stuff. But for the most part, I entertain the idea briefly. Angel of History is now published. Have you started work on another novel? Well, I started a while ago, but I now think that no, I haven't. It comes and goes. I have something that I'm interested in, but it fell apart, and I don't know whether... It can be resuscitated. Or... Well, as we're speaking now, we're kind of in a strange interregnum between a better past and a pretty scary future. Do you think that's inhibiting you at this point? Uh, no, no, no. I have been stuck since January. I was working on something. I thought I had something. And then I went to Lesbos in, in Greece to help with refugees in January. And my whole world and how I viewed things just completely fell apart. It wasn't just the refugees. It was who was there to help and, you know, the whole idea of what's Western and what's, what is, everything about it just fell apart for me then. Uh, It was quite an experience, quite traumatic, and not for the reasons that um, most people would think. It wasn't the refugees. It was just the situation. At this point, I feel like, there's a sword hanging over our heads. And when we talk politics, 
it gets scary. There are so many areas. You are an Arab living in America. You're a gay man living in America, which right now is probably less of an issue <laughs> than it could become down the road. My sister lives in New York in the Bronx. The Bronx is terrified right now because it's mostly Latino, a lot of it. You have also, because you've been around the world, you've seen other societies and you've seen America. How much should we take away from that and how much should we feel protected here? I suggest that you don't feel protected at all. The, you started it by saying that there's a sword hanging over our heads. The sword has always been there. That's the trouble is that when we live in a country with that forgets, we just think, assume that it's not there. But it has always been there. What this election has shown us that it just showed us the sword a little bit clearer. But it has always been there. So that, you know, the people in the Bronx, uh, the Latinos in the Bronx, as you, you said, they were always afraid. You just didn't, it wasn't as open as it is now. That you know, Now we can look, oh my God. But it's always been, as an immigrant, in this country is not different in many others in how it prosecutes the other. The difference is that in this country, one, one of the myths that we have is that we are a decent, loving people that wouldn't do things like that. I mean, I've heard it so many times after the election, we are better than this. My response is no, we are not better than this. We are this. The only thing that changes is it dissolves the delusion that we have that we are somehow a good, decent country. There is no such thing. We are both good and decent and are capable of many horrid things. And we have done them. So the question is, can we look back at our past with remembering? You know, every time I've been talking about the book, I keep thinking, do you understand that I'm talking about remembering and forgetting? And it's not about the AIDS epidemic. It's not about being an Arab. It's about the process of remembering and forgetting. It's that we seem to just not, you know, like this happened only f 20 years ago. Too bad. You know, now this happened only three days ago. We've forgotten about it. So that we create this delusion that this, could it happen here? Of course it could happen here. It's happened here. There's nothing that has happened here that hasn't been here before. Nothing. Trump is just the symptom. It's not anything new. It's just that, you know, his followers have been emboldened by something that was there all the time. We've just been delusional, pretending, you know. And then my favorite is one side accuses the other of being racist. No, we are all racist. And I keep thinking back to what it was like being 15 in New York, of all places, knowing that I was probably gay and being scared because of that. Yep. It doesn't change. Nothing changes. I mean, well, things change, but it doesn't change. The whole idea is that you're outside of the dominant culture so that, you know, yes, we have more of us appearing on TV. And it's like, yay! It's still just nothing. You know, what, what is important is how we treat the other, how, as a society, we treat those that are different than us. And that... You know, we, we move it from gay to Muslim, from, you know, Muslim to black. There's always somebody on the outside that we, we, we go after. So that the, the whole idea that this couldn't happen here, it's been happening for a long, long time. You've been listening to an interview with Rabi Alamadine, whose latest novel is The Angel of History. 
To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.